So glad that you are with us today. As Sam said, uh, we have 60 teenagers and chaperones away at Look Up Lodge. They left yesterday. They'll be back Wednesday. Pray for them. Uh, that God will work in their hearts. Uh, maybe some of them will come to know Jesus for the first time at youth camp this year. And also, Brian was back with us. You might remember Brian from a couple of months ago when Zach had to be away. Zach and McColl are in Florida. McColl's family's throwing them a baby shower for uh, baby girl number two this weekend. And so they're down visiting with family. And we're so glad that Brian could be with us and lead us in worship. If you are someone <clears throat> who at times feels left out or not seen or not as important as maybe other people, maybe not as well respected as some other people. If you're kind of the person in the shadows uh, watching other people be out front, then you could probably relate to the church that we're going to talk about today. We've been looking at these seven letters and each of them written to a church in a specific city. And the first three I've kind of built up because uh, they were important economically and they were important politically. There's a whole lot of cultural things that happened in those first three cities. That's not so much the case with city number four. They're not nearly as significant. They're certainly not powerful. Um, there's some economic uh, activity that's going on in the city, but they're not at a harbor, so, so they're not one of the major economic players. Uh, they, they don't have a thriving cultural scene in this particular city. As a matter of fact, it's the smallest city that we're going to read about. The smallest city out of the seven is the one that we're going to study uh, today, they, geographically, they're at a bit of a disadvantage uh, because with some of our other cities, they set up on a hill or, or close to uh, the sea. And so they, they had this defensive position where they could be easily protected. The city we're going to look at today is not that way. It sits in a valley, kind of a wide open space. It was vulnerable to attacks. Its military purpose was, if it were attacked, the goal was for this city to hold off the enemy until military reinforcements could be marshaled at the capital city, which was Pergamum. Not so they could send military to defend this city. They just said, you're not really that important. So if an army comes, you just fight real hard. We don't really care if you die. We just want to make sure nobody gets to Pergamum. It, it, it's sort of the Rodney Dangerfield of the seven churches that we're going to study. It just kind of doesn't get a whole lot of respect. So I, I kind of like this little city and their people. We'll see in a minute. They're... Their people were largely kind of blue-collar, hard-working types. They, they worked in those industries that you don't realize you need until you realize you really need them, and you, you got to have their help. It was, it was that sort of city. Even the name of the city. The, the name of the city is Thyatira. Now, uh, most of you know that uh, I was born in a small town, uh, to quote John Cougar Mellencamp. Uh, grew up in a small town. And the small town that I grew up, South Georgia, it was a place with cities named Heihara, um, Willacoochee, Omega, 
Tai-Tai, Hortense. There could have been a Thyatira in South Georgia and nobody would have blinked their eye. Like it would have fit in with the Hayhiras and all the other small little weirdly named communities. That's what this city was like. Just a small town, not all that significant. Now, I, I, I don't want to overstate the case. I mentioned uh, economically, it, it was built centered around trades, skills. Um, for example, there were um, tanners and metal workers and uh, textile type of industry, wool and linen and uh, specifically purple linen and wool in Thyatira. So, so again, calloused hands, hardworking, blue-collar type people. Small town. One of the nice things about reading a letter to a small town is that we're reminded we don't have to go somewhere else in order to be used by Jesus. We don't have to relocate. We don't have to move to some really important place in order to be a part of the ministry and purpose and mission that Jesus has called us to. Now, sometimes God calls people to move. God says, I want you to move over here and serve in that. Sometimes that happens. But for most of us, we don't have to wait for God's big reveal. Like one day he's going to give me this huge ministry. One day I'm going to have this purpose in my life. Jesus speaks... to little communities and little churches like Thyatira, and he says to them, right where you are is where I want to use you. Right where you are is where I've put you, so live for me. Live out your purposes right where you are. Again, it's just kind of a blue-collar, hard-working city. As a matter of fact, that attracted a lot of people to it. Uh, If you had a particular trade or skill, then you could move to this city and and find work. Or if your other livelihood somehow failed, you could come to this city, get trained, and have a way to provide for your family. So to that city, Jesus writes in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. If you've been with us, you know that Jesus introduces himself slightly differently to each church, and there's usually some significance to that. This is the first church that Jesus introduces himself as the Son of God. In Thyatira, which wasn't overly religious, um, but in Thyatira, their patron deity was Apollo, the son of Zeus. So their patron deity, in their mind, was a son of a god. And Jesus says to the church, I just want you to remember, there's only one son of God and I'm him. There's only one equal to God who has come from God and I'm him. And then his other description is uh, eyes like blazing fire and feet like burnished bronze. It's a, it's a reference to an Old Testament prophecy. It's a flashback to Revelation chapter 1. Because when John sees Jesus for the first time, this is part of the appearance that Jesus has. Eyes of blazing fire, feet of burnished bronze. Over all of the references 
I, I think Jesus is reminding them of his power and the fact that he sees everything. Eyes of blazing fire. Nothing is escaping the eyes of Jesus. We're, we're going to see that for a lot of the people in the church at Thyatira, they kind of had two lives going on. And they were keeping one life separate from the other life. And Jesus is sending the message, I see everything that's going on. I see what you're trying to hide from the other people you go to church with. I see what you're trying to hide from your spouse. I see what you're trying to hide from your kids. I see what you're trying to hide from your parents. I see what you're trying to hide from the other people you work with. I see what you're covering up is clear to me. And that's not only his message 2,000 years ago, this is message today to you and me as individuals, whatever we're covering up, whatever we're hiding, whatever we think we've been really good at covering up, Jesus says, I see right through it. I know what you're doing. I know your motives. I know your heart. I know your thoughts. I know what no one else knows, followed with feet of burnished bronze, meaning that at some point, the sin that we hide, the sin that we cover up, the lifestyle that we think no one else knows about, Jesus says, eventually, I'm going to come with weighty judgment against that. There are going to be some fairly serious and fairly weighty consequences to the choices that you keep making. And I see them, and I'm giving you time to respond. I'm giving you time to turn back. You just need to know at some point, I come with consequences for the sin in your life. Now, as Jesus usually does in his letters, he starts off with a bit of good news. Here's some things you're doing really, really well. A lot of good deeds, love, service, faith, perseverance. This is the only church so far that Jesus has commended their love. He criticized Ephesus for not loving enough. This church, Jesus says, I see how you love people. I see how you love God. I see how you love each other. This is a good thing that I find in you. And not only that, Jesus tells them, you're getting better at these things. You're progressing. You started here, and now you're doing even better in your walk. You're doing even better in your commitment. You're loving, your deeds, your faith keeps growing. And then Jesus, as he almost always did in these letters, turns around and tells the other side. This is verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. That means her followers, the people who adopt her teaching. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your Deed. So right there at the end, he underscores, look, I see. Everybody's going to know that I see. Maybe they think I'm not paying attention. There's coming a day when they're going to know I saw what was going on the whole time. 
Now, Jesus says there's someone in this church. He gives this person the name Jezebel, and that person is teaching something contrary to what God has already said. And because they're consistently saying it over and over again, more people are being deceived by that person's teaching. And so they're moving slowly but farther away from the truth of God. Now, Jezebel, some of you may know, Jezebel is a reference to the Old Testament. She was married to King Ahab. He was one of the kings of Israel. He was a terrible king, largely because of Jezebel, his wife. She enticed him to move away from the one true God and to begin worshiping false gods and setting up altars to worship false gods all over the nation of Israel. So not only was the king's heart turned away, but a large portion of the nation of Israel began to turn away from the one true God to false gods. She raised up her own prophets who would teach what she wanted them to teach. She tried to kill all the true prophets. And this spread more and more in the nation of Israel until God brought judgment and consequences on them. That's the reference. There is somebody in this church who is teaching what is directly opposed to what God has already said, and more and more people are believing it, and more and more people are acting accordingly. Now, perhaps our response to the church and to the people would be, well, just stop it, right? Like we do with our kids sometimes. Just stop it. You just stop it. And it hardly ever works, does it? It's like not a real good parenting technique. Just stop it. And maybe it stops for a few seconds, but then it starts right back up the next time. Just stop it. It's hardly good enough. But in Thyatira, there was a particular climate in the city that made it even more difficult to say, just stop it. Made it even more difficult for people just to stop committing the disobedience that they were committing. Many of the people who lived uh, in the city, were, they belonged to a guild or an association of people. And, and the guilds or the associations were directly related to your job. So every job had its own guild. And, and I don't know if this is 100% accurate um, analogy, but in my mind, it sounds a lot like a union. Uh, if you were a metal worker, then there was a metal workers union. There was a guild, an association of people that you were a part of. If you were in textiles, then there, there was a linen uh, guild. There was a wool guild that you were, the tanners were all a part of a guild. The bakers were all a part of a guild, an association or a union that would that would look out for you, that would help protect you, that would in many ways become your social network. What was happening in Rome, as the cities were beginning to pop up, people who needed work were leaving their extended family and making their ways into the cities. If you were a farmer and your crops failed and you couldn't support your family anymore, then you would take your immediate family, leave your extended family, and move into the city to try to find work. It, it sounds 
analogous to our industrial revolution. Like everybody started moving to the cities. Families became fragmented. So you move into a city because you need work, but you don't know anybody in the city. You don't have any connections. You don't have any friends. You don't have any place to socialize. You don't have anybody to protect you. Even if you die, there's nobody to bury you. There's nobody to make sure you get a a proper burial. So these guilds, these associations begin to crop up, not just as a way to get people together who are doing the same job, but also as a way to, to have friends, to have connections, to have social connections. So the guilds would come together uh, and, and they would eat meals together. Like they'd have potlucks and they'd grill out and they'd sit around and, and get to know one another. Uh, you, would, you would form deep friendships in these associations and in these guilds. One of the reasons in some cities Christianity flew below the radar Like in Thyatira, we don't read of the persecution in the way that we do some of the other cities. One of the reasons is churches were sometimes looked at as just another guild. Well, they they must be in association all by themselves because they get together and eat and they meet every once in a while and they have regular meetings. This was the nature of the city. Now, where it starts to get tricky is... Because the guilds were based on your occupation, you were expected to join the one that went with your trade. If if you were in textiles, you were expected. If you wanted a job, you were expected to be a part of that guild. Whatever your trade was, it was just an expectation. It wasn't necessarily a choice. It wasn't necessarily an extra benefit. You were expected to be a part. So what's the big deal? The problem was, while Thyatira wasn't overly religious, the guilds all chose their own patron deity for their guild. The metalworkers had a patron deity. Uh, The tanners had a patron deity. And so a part of their potlucks, a part part of their get-togethers, was sacrificing to their deities sacrificing food and then eating the food that had been sacrificed, participating in worship of the deity, declaring that that deity is your God and your Lord. And then often these get-togethers and meals would start to go downhill and everybody gets drunk and it turns into this drunken sexual party. So you're a believer in Thyatira and you are trying to stay faithful to God and to what He teaches. You're trying to keep your commitment to God, but you know, apart from associating with this group of people, you might not have a job. It could be economic and social suicide if you don't participate in what everybody else is participating. So there's this tension now that you have. How how am I going to honor God and how am I going to work? How am I going to honor God and how am I going to be accepted in this city? How am I going to get jobs? So if there was someone in your church that had a solution to that, and that person said, listen, God understands. God knows that you have to have a job. God knows that you have to pay your bills. 
God knows that your family's depending on you. It's fine. Just do whatever they're doing. Just go ahead. It doesn't matter. Just participate in the false God thing. Participate in the sex parties. Just participate. It doesn't matter. God does. God understands. People don't really believe that way anymore. These aren't the good old days. It's 100 A.D. for crying out loud. Nobody lives like that anymore. God doesn't care. Now, there was also, at this time, the beginnings of a form of dualism. And this particular form of dualism said that your body and your spirit are separate entities. And they don't affect one another. So it doesn't matter what you do with your body. It doesn't affect your spirit. So you can be right with God and do whatever you want to with your body. And this was a teaching that affected the church in the the early centuries. Uh, And it, it was an excuse that you can live like everybody else. You could do what everybody else is doing. You can abandon all the things that God said because it really doesn't matter. Your body really doesn't matter. Your spirit's all that matters. And here's a person in this church, Jesus calls her Jezebel, and and this person is giving an out. And you got to admit, if you feel the tension of the moment, it would be appealing to take the out. It would be appealing to say, I believe what he thinks about the Bible, not what I've been taught. I believe what they're saying. Now, this is new. I bet they're right. It would be appealing. And if we're totally honest, it would be appealing to some because they really wanted to try all those other things that people are doing. And they haven't had the chance because the church has told them they shouldn't do it. And so they finally found their excuse to not hold to what is true, to not be faithful, to give in so that they could have their religious life but they could also have acceptance in the city where they lived. A caution. Be very careful when you're tempted to compromise for economic or social reasons. Just be careful. Be careful when you start having that inner war with yourself, trying to talk yourself out of what you've always believed to be true. Because it will allow you to get along with people that you've met. When you try to start talking yourself out of what you have always believed to be true because it will help you advance economically. When you try to talk yourself out of and grab on to the teaching of people who say, nobody does it that way anymore. This is 2019. Everybody's doing this now. You'll fit in. When you feel that tension of, I don't want to stand out. I don't want people looking at me funny. I don't want people calling me names. When you feel the pressure to give in, to be accepted, you you and I both should have warning signals start going off. And and this is not a question about how anybody else behaves or believes. This is a question about how I behave and believe, how you behave and believe, how those who name the name of Jesus, how we live out our faith and what we hold to be true. 
Now, at Ephesus, they were holding fast to truth, but they weren't loving. At Thyatira, apparently they're loving, but they're not holding on to truth. And we can't trade one for the other, especially if the love we're talking about is a weak, shallow, flimsy sort of love. We can't give away what's true. We can't give away what God has already said in the name of a love that maybe isn't really love. Maybe it's just my way of not having to make hard decisions. And I call it love. What Jesus has called us to, what the Bible has called us to, is that we would love well and live well. Not one or the other. That we would love well and we would live well. We would love well and we would live rightly. We would love with the extravagant, gracious love of Jesus, while at the same time walking in truth and holiness and righteousness and purity. Because sometimes the evidence of love is standing for truth. Sometimes the language of love is, I love you enough to disagree with you on this. I love you enough and I will love you tomorrow as well. But I think you're wrong about this. I don't think this is at all what God said. I don't think this is at all what is best for you and your future. Sometimes the language of love is truth. Not abandoning truth in the name of love. So a couple of takeaways. One is, related to this Jezebel figure, whoever that was, you and I need to be on guard when it comes to the messengers in our life. We just need to be on guard about who we're listening to, who we're accepting information from, who we're willing to believe. Be on guard, not not suspicious necessarily, But spiritually be on guard when it comes to the messengers that we allow into our life. In the church at Thyatira, the person who claimed to be a Christian. In their Twitter profile, it said they loved Jesus. They had a fish on the back of their car. That person is saying things that's not accurate with the word of God. And I've mentioned this before. One of my great concerns for us right now is the celebrity culture that has also invaded the Christian world. It's that we so quickly and easily grab onto a celebrity messenger and sometimes it's only because we just like the messenger. And I get it. I understand that. But sometimes we find them attractive, we find them funny, they're famous, they wrote a book, they have a television show, they have a podcast that a bunch of people follow. And so we just gravitate towards messengers that we like. And sometimes if we aren't careful, we're not objective enough to be able to discern whether the message is actually true because we like the messenger so much. 
We like the way they talk or the way they write or the way they look or the company that they keep. And so we assume everything this person says must be accurate. We live in a time, maybe more than any other because of the Internet and technology and podcasts and and publishing. We live in a time, maybe more than any other, where you and I have to be very careful about the messengers that we're listening to and the criteria we have for what message will get into our head. What's the criteria? What am I going to judge it by? Another thought from this church is simply, Thyatira is another great example of how people are searching for connection. I mean, that was part of the problem. You moved into the city and you you didn't know anybody and you, you didn't have a place to connect and you didn't have a community. And, and so, yes, you would join these communities because it provided uh, friendships, relationships. It, it, it provided encouragement. It provided somebody you could get to know. 2,000 years later, people are the same. We're the same in the sense that we need connection personal opinion, I think we're worse at connection than we've ever been before. Okay, that's a whole other topic, maybe. But I, I think because of social media, internet, we, are, we still have the same need for connection. We're just not as good at it anymore because we connect so much virtually and so much online that real face-to-face connection, we're just not good at, a lot of us. We don't take the steps necessary to have that sort of connection. But Thyatira reminds us we have that need. And we, rather than out there, you're going to have friendships out there. But the church has to more and more become that place where people can find connection. Where people can feel like they belong. They can feel like they're a part of something. They can connect. But here's the the tension that Thyatira leaves us with. There are things going on there that I shouldn't be a part of. And yet the other side of that truth is that the people in the guilds are the same people we're called to reach with the gospel. So on the one hand, there is this message of you can't become like them. You can't do what they do. You shouldn't think like they think. You shouldn't become like they're becoming. You shouldn't adapt the way they live. At the same time, Jesus is their only hope. And you are responsible for reaching them with the gospel of Jesus. The Christian life has this inherent tension in it. It has the tension of, I want to walk obediently with Jesus. I want to walk obediently with God. I want my life to demonstrate truth and righteousness and holiness and goodness and the fruit of the Spirit and the characteristics of Jesus. I want to live that out. But the mission field is among people who don't live that out. The people who need the gospel are the people who don't live that out. And so there's a tension between me being right with God and realizing I've got to be in the lives of the world of people who don't live the way I do or think the way I do or act the way I do or speak the way I do or believe the way I do. 
And if we don't ever feel that tension, I'm not sure we're walking as close to Jesus as we should be. If we don't ever have those moments of, should I go there? Should I, should I be with them? Should I go to that place with them? Because I want to share Jesus. I don't want to become like them, but I want to share Jesus with them. If you don't ever feel a little bit of tension sometimes, then probably one of two things is happening. Because here are the two ways we typically resolve this tension as, as Christians. We resolve the tension either by just ignoring morality, just ignoring what God has said, just pretending like that part doesn't matter. So I don't feel any tension because I don't ever feel like I have to live that out. We just adopt what everybody else believes and does and says about life and relationships and marriage and commitment and, and all of those. We just adopt what they say. So I don't feel a tension. Or, or the other end, I, I don't ever try to be around people that believe differently from me. I try to insulate my life just around people who know Jesus and believe what I believe and act like I act and only do the things that I do and they don't do the things that I don't do. We relieve the tension because we're never in proximity to people who really need Jesus. Because, because if you do, like if you seriously want to follow Jesus in every area of your life and you seriously want to intersect the lives of people who are lost, you're going to feel that tension sometimes. You're going to feel that, should I go here? Should I be here? Should I have that conversation? Is this okay? It's a part of the life that we live. We want to resolve it for our kids too, don't we, parents? We want to resolve it for our kids. And as our kids get older, they're only going to feel the tension more if we're doing it right. They're only going to feel the tension of, I don't want to become like that, but I love that person, and I want to influence that person, and I can't influence that person from way over here. I've got to be in their life somehow. It's a tension. We should be feeling constantly in our spiritual lives. How do I reach people that are far from Jesus and still stay close to Jesus at the same time? How do I speak into the lives of people who have abandoned the Bible and religion and God? How do I have influence in there? How do I build friendships to them and yet stay close to Jesus? What I wish, I wish there were five steps for this. Like I wish there was a verse that said, here are the five steps to make that work. And there's not five steps to make that work. Because every relationship you and I have is different. Every person that we encounter is different. Every struggle that we have is different. You and I have to draw close to Jesus. We have to walk closely to Jesus. And then we have to be okay with Jesus using us to reach people that are far from Him. And need to come to Him. Last thing. In the time that we live, in the world that we live, some of us are very tempted right now to abandon what we know is true because it would just be easier to live as if it's not true. 
to abandon what we know God has said because there would be less tension if we just gave in. And some of us have already started giving in. Like some of us have already stepped over that line. and we've, we've lowered the call that Jesus has put on our life. We've explained away the teachings of Scripture. And we're already stepping across that line. One of the quick but beautiful moments in this letter is that Jesus said even to Jezebel, whoever Jezebel was, man or woman, or whoever that was, Jesus says, I gave that person time to turn around. This is a person that's wrecking the church, that's wrecking lives, and Jesus said, even that person, my patience with them, my love for them, my mercy went out for them. I was patient, waiting for them to turn back to me. And there may be people in the room this morning You're moving away from God. You're moving away from what's true. And Jesus' message to you is, I'm I'm so patient with you because I want you to come back. I love you. My mercy is long. My, My grace is infinite. But I won't be patient forever. I mean, in Thyatira, he had reached a point where there was no more patience for this person. So I want to encourage you. Turn around, step back, move back into His Word, move move back into a right relationship with Jesus, get some accountability and encouragement around you, have other people walking this path with you who love you. Don't exhaust the patience of Jesus because you want to be like everybody else, because you want to believe what everybody else believes, because you want to live like everybody else lives. Step into His love. Let's pray. God, thank You for sober reminders that we sometimes get in Your Word. Just very clear challenges that were not only true at the turn of the first century, but they're true today. Our hearts are drawn away from You. And there, it's not a small list of teachers who claim to be speaking for you that would give us permission to do whatever we want in our life. It's not a small list. It's not a small list of people on the internet, books that have been written that would say, you don't have to worry about that. That's not what God meant. That's not true anymore. We're living in the 21st century. Help us to carefully evaluate the messengers in our life and compare them to what your word says and what your word teaches and to live our life not by messengers, but to live our life by your word. And then those of us who love you, who are following you. Help us not to build silos where we just keep to people who are like... We're only friends with people who see everything the way we see. Help us to feel the tension of loving a broken world. 
We can't read the story of Jesus and not come away thinking he was always going to people who didn't believe him. He was always going to people who didn't live the way he really wanted them to live, but he loved them and he entered their world. Help us to be okay with that tension so that we would be light and love in a world that's lost its way. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.